Welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast, where life, sports, and medicine intersects. We are glad that you are part of this growing community where we strive to help you strengthen your mindset, help you grow your assets, and help you achieve whatever level of success that you want for your life. Go to our website at drderekthesportsdoctor.com where you can find all the latest content and you can also follow us on our social media channels. Now, let's get into this episode. All right, so welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor, and we have another very interesting guest for you today, and Mr. DeAndre Mastella, a.k.a. Dre. Um, he is a, a specialist in orthotics and prosthetics, and he owns his own company, OPS Solutions. So really glad to have him on the show today to share his journey from athlete to entrepreneur. Uh, thanks for coming on, Dre. Oh, man, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Appreciate the invite. <clears throat> Absolutely. So we met probably a couple of years back. Your company came to my office and I saw the paperwork, saw that you were based out of Baton Rouge, where I have another one of my close friends working. Saw you as a you know black male entrepreneur and definitely wanted to connect with you. So the work that you're doing is very important in the community for sure. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So tell us about how you go from former college football player to now entrepreneur. It's a lot to demand on you to be an athlete and then, you know, at a D1 level from just the physical standpoint and also the mental standpoint of the dedication, like from, you know, we getting up at 4.30 in the morning practices to working out afterwards to go to class and then got to go to tutoring and study hall and film session and weights again. It's a strenuous thing that's on you. I was always nagged with that injury bug my whole career. So my parents was just like, hey, you know, one day you're going to have to put that ball down. And I never really seen it because from five years old, it was a part of my life from five to 22 years old, <clears throat> me 21 years old. It always been a part of my life. So I never really true, truly seen myself who I was without sports attached to my name. And then, so like I said, once the injuries, you know, it started my senior year of high school and then it just kept on coming. So, and my parents was, uh, both of my parents are in the medical field. So it was just like, you know, you got to figure out what you want to do. And I had no clue. But as I spent more time in therapy and stuff like that, I, at first I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. I was a computer science major. I switched to engineering. And then I switched to exercise science. But I think it's hard as an 18-year-old kid to really truly know, like, what I want to do for the rest of my life. So right. the biggest advice that I kind of give somebody at, at that point where you, you know, if you're 16, 17, 18, get ready to go to college, I think you got to start shadowing jobs at that age, which I didn't do, to see if that's, like, is this truly what I'm interested in? Yeah, the titles may sound good, but is, would this make me happy? Because at the end of the day, you're, the – you got the rest of your life to have to do this stuff. So it, it needs to be something that you truly enjoy and want to do, or you're miserable every day. I like computers at the time, but once I started taking all those coding classes, I said, there's no way I want to do this for the rest of my life. I hate it. Like, I <laughs> hate it. So, you know, I wasted time doing that. So then I go, okay, cool. Engineering, I'm good with numbers. I'm good with science. All right, engineering. I want to sleep every day in class. I'm like, I couldn't keep my interest. <laughs> so... You know, my professor's like, it's disrespectful, blah, blah, blah. It was just the fact that I wasn't interested. So, you know, I kind of marked that one off. And then exercise science, it, it piqued my interest. I liked it. And then it kind of gave me a vehicle to, I didn't truly knew what I, know what I wanted to do, but I knew I, I could go I could go down a lot of different paths with this. So that's how I ended up with exercise science. And then at that time, I figured I was going to be a physical therapist. Got it. So it's funny because... 
what you just mentioned is something that I talk about a lot on this podcast, especially with when I'm interviewing an athlete is, you know, at one point, the cleats have to be hung up, right? The ball is going to stop bouncing. You're going to, the balls, you know, no longer can hit a home run. So in the grand scheme of things, you're playing your sport generally for a short segment of your life. I mean, most people, especially as a professional athlete by your mid to late twenties or early thirties, you're done for the rest of your life. So you're going to have 30, 40 years of your life to figure out. So it sounds like your parents were kind of already planting those seeds early on. Like, okay, you got to get it in books because you don't just show up to college and major in engineering or computer science without being pretty smart anyway. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I knew that. And then that kind of go back to high school. So I remember I told my mom when I was in high school, I was like, Hey, I don't want to go to college. Like, and I'll be honest, I was, I never truly liked school. I wasn't, mm-hmm. I, I, I said I wasn't a school person and I ended up going to school for a long time, but I just didn't. I just, you know, I love sports and I was like, I'm here so, cause I can, so I can play. And then she's like, all right, cool. Well, if you don't want to go to college, all right, this is what we're going to do. Let's get you a job. So you go ahead and start getting accustomed to working. Right. <laughs> and so instead of her like, no, you're going to go, which in her mind, that's what she was thinking, but she just took a different approach. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I remember I going, I started working at McDonald's. I was 16, working at McDonald's. Man, that grease was popping me. I'm getting pimples. <laughs> I was getting pimples on my face. And I remember I got that first chick. And I was like, no, nah, I'm a, I can't do this. Yeah, I can't. This ain't gonna I, work. This ain't gonna work, man. Like they working me hard. I'm talking about washing dishes and doing all this stuff. Now nah, this ain't gonna work. I'm gonna go to college. And I think it was just kind of one of those like aha moments for me. It's just like you know, it's nothing wrong with that. Everybody has to work somewhere and do what they have to do. But I just knew at that time, I was like, okay, cool. I got to go a different path. And I wanted to play football anyway, of course. So going to college was the next way to do that. So I think that just kind of opened my eyes. And then, like you said, once I got to college, I had two parents. And my mom is a nurse practitioner. My dad does biomed. So it was just kind of like I spent a lot of times in hospital settings already. So I kind of Knew I wanted to go that route after I started getting a little older. I just didn't know if I wanted to go to med school or PT school or what I wanted to do. And then so once I graduated, uh, a good friend of mine, she was a PT. She got me on at UAB Hospital. So I became a rehab tech. So I worked in inpatient and outpatient therapy. And I enjoyed it, but I realized that ain't what I want to do for the rest of my life either. I was able to get introduced to orthotic and prosthetics at that point because UAB had in-house orthotics and prosthetics. So uh, I started seeing those guys working in there. And so I started going up there every day at lunch. And I went up there so much that it was like, listen, you up here more than you are downstairs. Listen, we need some help. And <laughs> you can come work for us. So I'm like, all right, cool. How much you paying? And it was, I was making more money than I was going to make downstairs. Cool. Let's transfer me over. So I started doing orthotic fitter work, just so fitting, uh, you know, knee braces, back braces, TLSOs, LSOs. And at that point, I was like, you know, I kind of really like this, but I really like what he's doing. That was Brian Mueller. He was the prosthetist at the time at UAB. And I was like, well, you know, you got to go back to school, to prosthetic school to do that. Yeah, I was like, you know, what's prosthetic schools? I had no idea about it or anything. And then Brian kind of introduced me to Dr. Duncan. He was over the program at Alabama State, and him and Brian went to school together. So Alabama State had just opened the prosthetic program, which was, you know, an hour and a half away from where I was in Birmingham. So prosthetic school and PT school had the same prereqs. So I already had all the classes I needed and everything. So I didn't have to do nothing extra. And then since I was already working in the field as a fitter, I had the hours I needed too. 
So I said, you know what, if it's meant for me, it's meant for me. So I'm going to apply to this one school. And at that time, I think it was only like six schools anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to apply to this one school. If I get in, I get in. If I don't, I don't. I'll figure something else out. And at that time, I, already, I was an uh, entrepreneur already. So I was working at UAB Hospital as a rehab tech. And I had uh, a gym. So I was working both, doing both. And then I ended up getting into school. And so from that point, that's how I got into the prosthetics realm. And then that's kind of where like life started to change because I was never, I was always a student athlete. So now for the first time in my life, I was just a student. So, and then it's not like you don't got coaches checking classes. You don't got the extra tutors, you know, right. you had a lot more structure when you was in that realm because you got more people watching you and making sure you're doing the right things too. But also at the same time, now I'm older. So I think I was about, I went to prosthetic school in 2014. So I was probably about 23, 24, somewhere. So yeah. I was a little older and more mature. So it worked out pretty good at that point. Yeah. So, you know, you are the first orthodist or prosthetist to be on this show. And even in the medical community, many people still don't really understand what that means. So talk to us about what the orthodist does and also tell us more about the training track. I know you said you got into uh, orthotic school, but what exactly is that? How long does it take to complete it? All right, so the schooling is you got to go to undergrad, get your four year undergrad first. Then you go to grad schools and get a master's in prosthetics and orthotics. So that's the two year program. And then from there, you got to do a two year residency after that. So once you complete the master's program, graduate, I do a two year residency after that. So, you know, after that, you put, you know, four years and two, six, and then residency, two more. So I still end up doing eight years in school. So, uh, and that's something I never thought I would do because I always was like, I hate school. But uh, <laughs> it was good. And it, was, it also showed me that I had, I had more tools in my toolbox than I realized. I was smarter than what I realized. Um, I kind of was like a mediocre student in the undergrad. I just wanted to, you know, get enough to get by. And never truly, truly pushed myself until I got to grad school. And I think I graduated grad school like a 3.6 or something like that. Because the first time I was just buckled down, I was locked in and I really studied. It worked out pretty good because then I had to truly learn it. So that's why I told myself too, well, if this is what I'm going to do every day, I got to really apply myself. So that's what pushed me. And the field is wide open. We actually need more people. We need more practitioners in the field because the older people that was in the field, they're retiring out, retiring out, and we're not putting enough people into the field. So right. it's at a point where you can literally move anywhere in the country. You don't got to call nobody. You can literally go show up and you'll probably have a job same day in the town. So wow. if you are orthodox or a process, probably nine supply times. Supply and demand, right? <laughs> yeah, the supply and demand is so strong right now that you can move anywhere in the country and get a job at same day, most likely. You're actually making the orthotics and prosthetics. You're making the devices that people that have amputations or you know, people that have some type of deformity, you're actually fitting them and making a, a prosthetic for them, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. So what we do is we'll come in. So someone have an amputation, we'll come in. We'll make sure the, the limb heals right correctly first. So once the limb heals correctly, we'll come in, we'll put shrinkers on. The shrinkers will get kind of some of the edema and swelling from the surgery, all that out of there. At that point, we'll cast them. Or like now, since we got more technology, we can scan them because we have mm-hmm. 3D printers as well. Well, cast or scan, whichever one we choose to do. At my company, we have in-house. We don't send out. We do everything in-house. So we have a lab that we make the prosthetic in, and then we'll go back and fit it. So what we do is create it, fit it, and then make sure it maintain the safety of it, 
make sure that uh, the patient don't get any wounds and stuff of that nature. Absolutely. And tell us about, you know, at first, so when I got into orthopedics, amputations, I used to hate having to do them. I felt like it was such a morbid procedure. And then I met a guy who had pain for like 40 years. And then he had an amputation. He was felt like that was the first time that he was without pain. And he actually had more function than when he had that limb that was causing him the pain. And that kind of shifted my perspective on the procedure in general. And then you're on the backside after the person's gone through the surgery. And now you're trying to restore their function uh, so they can try to lead as normal of a life as possible. So what kind of gratification do you get from the work you're doing? Man, the gratification I get from it is tremendous. Exactly what you said. I've seen so many people. I I mean, I got one guy. He fought uh, like 40-some surgeries, almost eight, nine years, just surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery fighting. So he lost eight years of his life, basically, because every time he have a surgery, he's down recovering. That don't work. Another surgery, down recovering. So eight years of his life fighting it. And they finally just said, you know, we've done all we could do. Amputation is the only thing we could do. And he was devastated and devastated. And I came in and I remember he was just so combative with me. It was just like, yeah, man, but you got both of your legs. That's what he kept saying. But you got both of your legs. You're trying to tell me this, that, you know, it's going to be life after amputation, but you don't have an amputation. And I kept saying, yes, sir, you know, you're right. I do have both of my legs. And then from that point is where I created a position in my company as patient advocates. And so cause so for me, I can speak from an educational standpoint of how I can get you here and what we could do and how things will still be able to get back to somewhat of a new norm. I never say normal right. because sure. it's it, yeah, anatomical. Once you lose your animal, it's not the same, but it's just mm. your new norm. Now right. I can get you back to, you know, running. I can get you back to jumping. I can get you back to driving, but it just will be a little different. But once I created that position of an amputee that works with us, somebody that been through it, so now I can allow that person to speak from their experience. So like, hey, look, I went through it too. Look at me. Look, look at my leg. Yeah, look at my no, arm. That's great. Yeah. So now you got somebody. So now instead of like, so now it's me and this amputee. So I'm just talking from a clinical standpoint, and then I allow them to tell their story and their journey of how they overcame it. And I think it's great. And I also match them up too. So I would match a 65-year-old woman with an 18-year-old guy. So we right. try to keep them close because the first thing they'll say is, yeah, he could do it because he's young. Mm -hmm. So we, we try to keep them close in age gaps just from that mental standpoint of coming in to saying, like, hey, look, I had an amputation. Look at me. I'm still driving. I still cook. I still clean. I still grocery shop. So I think it's great. And it's a good satisfaction for me when I get to see from the beginning to the end because I come in, spirits is low, depression is high. You know, it's a lot. You you born with your legs, and then one day, you know, one of them are gone or both. So it's a lot, and I understand that point. So, you know, we, we got to come in from just talking, just mentally being there for the patient at first until we even get to a physical point of it. But once I see that patient running again, I've seen a patient. Uh, he, we got a, a great story getting ready to drop. One of my patients, he, um, he was with another company, and he just always had issues, never could get fitted right. It was just always uncomfortable. And it took us a while. He just, it was a hard case. It took us a while, but we got it right. And his mom kept saying, I just want to see you happy and walk. I want to see you happy and walk. And he was able to, uh, by Christmas, so we was able to get him up and walking pain-free by Christmas. And then, like, a couple of weeks later, his mom in the passing. 
And he called us and was just like, man, listen, y'all made my mom's dream come true. Like, wow. I, I feel like I couldn't get that feeling nowhere else. Like, yeah. And he was able to, you know, be a pallbearer at his mom's funeral and wear his prosthesis and carry the casket. So it was just a good feeling to know, like, you know, that you're helping somebody and can change somebody's life. Right. And that's the stuff that money can't buy or money can't pay for. Right. You know, you can get reimbursed for the prosthesis that you make. But those stories and the life changing experiences, that's more valuable than any paycheck you can get. You know, Absolutely. so that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, tell us about, you know, orthotics and prosthetic solutions, because this is one thing I know your your model is different. You're mobile. Um, and when you said that, I was like, wow, that's genius. So because you're dealing with many times patients that can't get around or might not have the support from family or other members in the community to help them get to where they need to be. So tell us about your business model and how you came about that. So, yeah. So what we do is so orthotic and prosthetic solutions, the name of our company. And yeah, we're a mobile company. So the issue is this. Imagine someone just get an amputation. They're in a wheelchair. So now this person has to get this wheelchair in and out of a vehicle. First of all, they may not have a vehicle. And then right. if they do, they got to have a vehicle big enough to put a wheelchair in there and have somebody driving them around, get the wheelchair out. It's a lot. And so what we was having is missed appointment after missed appointment after missed appointment. So I said, you know what, like, we got to figure something out. We can, you know, at the end of the week, we got 10, 12 missed appointments. Like, this ain't going to work. And so I say, you know, I talked to one. I said, hey, what if I come to you? Hey, that'd be great. So I, you know, I drove to the house and I could do everything there, which I got better at and I got better systems and more equipment and stuff to make it even better at someone's house. So I went and then I'm like, okay, cool. So I start now we start going to people's houses and we see no missed appointments because they're at home anyway. Right. <laughs> so uh, we see uh, less appointments being missed. Productivity was going up. So I'm like, okay, cool. This is our model. So now how do we perfect this model and we go into you know now we got vans with equipment in the back of the van so we got everything we need we can go to somebody's living room and do everything go back out to the van if we need come back in and we could do everything right there on the spot and then of course we start getting more vans so we can cover more area and so now we're at the point where we cover whole state of mississippi whole state of louisiana and now we're in the mobile area of alabama as well yeah that's that's excellent and, you know, entrepreneurship is what? Solving problems. It's about you see a problem and you come up with a solution. And the more you can do that, the more successful your company is going to be, um, the more patience you're going to have. So, I mean, who would not want somebody to come to their home to fit them right there in the comfort of their home? So I think that's awesome. And, and COVID too. So that COVID. So when COVID hit, you know, nobody was prepared for COVID. No, no one knew anything. Everybody was in limbo. So it also just it helped me a lot because no one was traveling anywhere. So um, right. hospitals shut down elective surgeries. Amputation was elective surgeries. So, you know, that that hurt business a lot. So then at that point, we was already traveling to houses. So what I did was go stock up on gowns, masks, gloves, face shields, told the patients, hey, you just I see you on the porch. You come on the porch. Nobody else could be on the porch. You gowned up, mask up, and we still work. So at that point, business start going up even higher because they're like people still needed to get done, still needed services to get done. So we're still able to uh, still operate. Now, when you when was your business established? Two thousand twenty. Okay, so basically, 
right, right before the COVID, pandemic? Right before the literally right before the pandemic. So pandemic really we found out about it early March. And that's by mid-March, whole country shut down. So you opened up a month or two before that, maybe. So yeah. what's going through your mind when you know, okay, you gotta shut your doors? What so, just through that? A lot. Cause so you think I'm working for I walked away from a job where I was the head top guy. I was making mm -hmm. great money. And so, you know, already I got people in my ears like, you're crazy. You're young. You're making this money. You're the boss over there. Like, you're going to walk away, go start your own. And I'm like, you know, that just that's not the vision I had. I like I I got this vision. I think it's going to I feel like it's going to work. I'm going to make it work. And if it don't work, I go back to the drawing board. I'm not scared to, to take the gamble. And then COVID hit. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, oh, my God. Like, how do I like, you know? And it's like, but one thing about me, I never like, I'll never look for excuses. I never like, why me? I never, it's like, okay, cool. If it's a way in it, it's a way out of it. You just got to figure like it out. That. You yeah. got to figure it out. It's always a way out. You just got to figure it out and stay the course. And I was so determined because I had not, I had people in my corner, but I just had people that should be in my corner, not rooting against me, but just like, I think he's nuts. Like you, <laughs> you just don't walk away from what you walked away from. Right. And, and uh, so I was like, man, I got to make this work. Like, I, I and I really put, I went all in. I put every dime I had into it. And I just like, I'm bending it all on me. So I, I knew I had, it was going to have to work. And I just was patient enough to not panic. Like, so that's what happened too. So some of my competitors, they stopped amputation. The whole world shut down. People can't get to doctors. They're not doing telehealth as much at that point. They hadn't really got to the point where, okay, cool. We'll start doing telehealth. So when right. telehealth came around, you know, we was able to get orders again and stuff of that nature. But people panicked so much. And I kind of just like, okay, cool. I had been running, running, running from 19 trying to get this thing ready to go. So I said, I just took a step back. Okay, cool. Analyze the situation. Like, okay, cool. The whole world shut down. Nobody's outside. So now I get a point of I was ripping and running so much. I get almost some solitude of peace. Mm -hmm. And so now I can really kind of hone in on strategic moves because I ain't ripping and running seeing patients because, like, I was ripping and running over the whole state. I'm in Shreveport one day. I'm in Alexandria the next. I'm in New Orleans, Baton Rouge. I was – anywhere I get a patient, I'm I'm gone, ripping and running. Right. <laughs> so now it's like, okay, it done calmed down. And I got all day, all day. And I'm still getting up like I'm going to work. So I get up in the morning and I sit at my table – and like, okay, how do I figure out how can we operate in this? And we don't know how long it's going to be. We don't know anything. So I just, like I said, all right, we had already started doing it in the mobile. So I'm like, okay, we're already going to people's houses. Mm -hmm. So I start calling patients. And I'm like, okay, hey. They're like, I need to get seen and woo-woo, but, you know, I don't want to come to the office with all them people. All right, cool. Well, I can come to you. Um, so this is what we'll do. I'll come. And we had we had stuff in bags, so of course patients didn't have like gowns and stuff like that. So I can't drop it off on their porch. They'll gown up, mask up, everything. Whoever treating them, we do the same. And like I said, everybody had to stay in the house. Just that one person, me and that one person. We on the porch. We do it. We go back. And then the other part was just like even my lab guys. They're like, man, you know this COVID stuff. We we bringing stuff from somebody's house to. <laughs> so we trying to figure out. 
you know, how to keep everything sanitized to try to like eliminate any kind of stuff. So, you know, everybody's on edge at this point because, you know, the lab guys, they have kids and stuff. It's like, I don't want to, you know, bring something, take it to my family. So it, it means the same thing. So I was just trying to figure out, but we figured it out and it worked. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I seen doors closing. So as, as it's working and we're pumping and we're starting to push more and more, I see other people's doors closed. I'm like, if I could survive this, right. I, could, I think I, I'm on to something now. And then that's what gave me more confidence. And it gave me the confidence early on. Like, you can survive this pandemic that closed a lot of doors. I think we can pretty much handle whatever get tossed our way. Yeah. And like you mentioned, once you have survived that and then you start to thrive through it, it's like, okay, what can I not do? Right. Absolutely. Like, what are the true limits now that I've figured this out in a storm? What are the limits to me now? So I, I can imagine that you have continued to just grow and the fears probably just disappears as well. As healthcare providers, we spend a large portion of our lives focused on our training as well as taking care of other individuals. But I'm calling a timeout because life can change in an instant. We know it's difficult to fathom that a sudden illness, injury, or death could put you and your family in a devastating financial situation. But that's where Dr. Stephanie Pearson and her unique team of advisors at Pearson Rabbits come into play. They focus on empowering physicians like yourself to protect your most valuable asset, your income, and life's most important people, your family. So go to PearsonRabbits.com to make sure that you are protected today. Yeah, it definitely did. Cause like you said, that was that. And I was just like, man, this is terrible time. I'm like, how do yeah. I go all in at this time? And something yeah. that nobody ever seems just hit. But like you say, also just that that determination fact. I refuse to lose this same kind of thing mentality I had in sports. Like, I hate to lose. I'm not gonna lose. I'm gonna figure out a way to win. And like I said, bringing sports back into it was just that drive. Like I used to have 16 hour days in sports every day. So right. it was the point of saying, okay, I work eight hours. This is easy. I could do this twice in one day, actually. And I <laughs> did days. But, Yeah, I literally was doing that. I did it for two years straight when I first started. I was working 16 hours a day, almost six, six, at least six days a week when I was trying to grow the business. And I was like, and people were like, how are you doing? I'm like, I did this for years. Like, this is easy. I'm used to it. And still now, I still got the same drive and passion where five offices in and almost 30 employees in now. So it's like, and I still bring that same desire. I want to be the best. I don't want it to be like, you know, when you had that GOAT talk, when you talk about Jordan or LeBron and Kobe, it's a debate. You know, all three are greats. I, hopefully one day when it's all said and done, I want it to be like no debate that we say in the prosthetic game, he's on Mount Rushmore. That's my goal. And just to leave a legacy behind for my family to be like I, I didn't have any family that owned businesses either so it was like I never took a business class in my life so this was really just just hustle and bustle like figuring it out I took L's like things I'm like oh you should have known that well I ain't really know and I, I did have people around me like my one of my good friends Corey he owned a mental health company a big mental health company in Virginia so you know I called him like hey this is going on I'm trying to do this with the insurance stuff like that and I think that's a key part, too, is, like, networking. Nobody can do it alone, I think. Right. Nobody can do it alone. You're going to have to have a team. You had somebody in your corner, whether it was – no matter how minute the thing they did for you, is you got to have a team, man. Uh, I just believe, you know, I keep God first. I can do anything I put my mind to. Yeah, no, collaboration and, like you said, God and faith. I think those are part of the, the secret ingredients to success that people 
overlooked many times. Absolutely. So or LPS, your company, you're now in the NIL space. It's only a natural fit, to be honest, as you as a former athlete, you know, entrepreneur, that you'll be able to help other athletes. So just kind of talk to us about your decision to get into the NIL space and how that's impacted your business. Everybody on my team knows that like, he always talks, I'm, I'm a sports guy. That's just me. I always wanted to figure out how could I still kind of get in that realm of world, in that world, because I love it. That's what I like. It. I watch sports. I go to a lot of games. So I was trying to figure it out. So then when NIL hit, I'm like, okay, this may be a lane, but how does this lane help me and could be beneficial? So I watched it for a little while. And then, of course, so our home office is in Baton Rouge. And, of course, who else is in Baton Rouge? LSU Tigers. So, you know, I'm a Bama guy, but, you know, <laughs> I always kind of get a, a lot of heat for that. So I was just trying to figure it out. And then, um, of course, the girls went to Natty last year. And they're the hottest things in the country. Like, they literally, I seen that team become a team full of rock stars. And it seemed like overnight, but nothing happens overnight. You know, they put right. their work in to get there. So now you got a team full of rock stars, and they're literally every channel you watch, every podcast, they're everywhere. And I'm like, man, these girls got it going on there. You know, and I'm happy because from that former athlete, I've, you know, you've been there like, you know, universities make millions and millions and billions of dollars, and then, you know, you got guys that's barely eating. So, like, it, it's not cool. So, I, I'm loving the NIL space for the athletes. I think it's great. So, then me as a business guy, I'm like, how can this, you know, help business? And I kind of get in that world. And I kind of got it. So, Michaela technically, like, so Michaela is my uh, our first person we signed as an NIL. Michaela and, Williams. Yeah, Michaela Williams, uh, point guard, a guard at LSU. She's number one recruit at Louisiana coming out of high school. She's from uh, not Shreveport, but Bossier City. <laughs> I get that right for people. Yeah. Shreveport and Bossier, yeah. two different places. <laughs> Five minutes away, but two different places. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, she's from Bossier City. And so, like, actually, when I first got to Louisiana, I lived in uh, Bossier. And that's how I kind of ended up getting that connection there. Some friends I met out there ended up getting connected with Michaela and her dad. So I think it's been great, man. Uh, Michaela was awesome. She's awesome to work with. She, I see her, she's, she's hungry for basketball. Like you could, she don't really care about the outside stuff. She ain't, she, that, she just, she loved the game of basketball. So I, it, it's great to kind of, you know, get to watch her and we shoot videos with her and talk with her, her journey and, and watching her grow as being a young woman, um, African-American woman too. Uh, being able to show these other kids and other other young girls, like it's not all about the boys too. Like you know, right. as a woman, you can come in and and make a name for yourself, and you don't have to be submissive to the guys or be uh, subpar up under the guys. You can still you can have your own lane and and be there. So I think the NIL space is great, and I'm looking to do more deals. Like now, I'm really you know figuring out the lane and how it could work and be beneficial. So I'm definitely looking to get some more NIL deals done. And I'll be honest, like. I feel like I got the NIL guru right in my backyard, uh, Gordon. I just see him, all the advertisement. You can't ride down 10 or 12 in Baton Rouge and not see a, a Gordon sign. He got all the athletes, all the LSU athletes. He, yeah. he, so I just, you know, I was able to watch from afar. and Okay, he's doing it right. I like that. And then just kind of figure out a way to do it my way. But I think it's, it's a great space, and I'm looking to go deeper into it. Yeah, be a student of the game. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah. And, you know, what you mentioned, I got to experience the whole LSU just traveling, feeding, you know, traveling circus almost because we were in Mississippi State. I went up to Starkville for my daughter 
um, you were able to connect us with Michaela's father and, you know, came close to getting the introduction, but after that loss, coach kept him in the locker room, but sold out crowd for college women's sports mm-hmm. on a Monday night, you know, that's huge. And the amount of Very people huge. that were, I mean, it was hundreds of people waiting outside of their locker room just to try to get a glimpse of the women, you know, when they came out, like I mentioned, they didn't come out, but that's the LeBron James traveling around. That was Jackson state with coach prime. We would go to different cities and there's just people flooding the stands just to get a, a view of them and hopefully to take a picture or whatever. And it's that same thing going on in LSU and women's sports. And it's not only at LSU, you got South Carolina, you have Juju Smith out at um, USC. So the game is changing and it's beautiful because I have now I have daughters that are playing sports. So it's a beautiful thing to see. And you said the women are getting their space and they don't have to, you know, compete. They do compete with the men, but they can get their own because we know that there's been a discrepancy for women's sports for so long in this country. Yeah, you could even see last year, like like last year's final four. Yeah. Check the numbers. Like the women's yeah. four that the women's final four did more numbers than the guys. And you know it's changing. I think it's good, and it's also you know as the guys we got you know step it up too. Like we got to yeah. okay, cool. We got to got to stay hungry and compete. And but I think it's a great space for a woman to be in from an athlete standpoint to say like I don't have to be this how it has to be. Like even like with Angel, like you know of course you get caught up. She's a competitor. Like last year, oh, yeah. Like, yeah it, the women are just as competitive, so of course they get into it. They're gonna trash talk and everything else. So I, I think it's great. And now it's starting to be okay. It's accepted. Okay, yeah. we're, we're we're accepting them to be outspoken. We're accepting them to be in the heat of the moment and talk a little trash. It's okay. And I, I think it's good for the sport. You can't you can't water the sport down just because that woman. I think it's definitely it's headed to the right way. And man, like Coach Moki, like what she do is it's crazy, you know. And you had some of the great coaches women coaches as well. I just think they was just not in the era that college or that women's sports are at now. So now yeah. I think she just, she's hit it at the right time. Yeah. You know, Angel Reese definitely earned my respect in that game against Mississippi state. I mean, it was a hard fought game. Mississippi state was just shooting lights out and she was battling under the goal. I think ended up with 20 plus points and almost 20 rebounds, but it was just grinding through the game, you know, and they were up, down, trailing by four, five, eight points, and they never stop. And, you know, they end up getting beat by three or four points. But when you have somebody shooting over 50% from three-pointer, that's going to happen at time, from time to time, you know. Yeah. That's lightning in a bottle. But that team didn't stop, and they kept battling through, and that's truly the heart of a champion. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you know, they got, what, three losses now this year, I think. Uh, so everybody, oh, they're not who they were right. last year, this, this, and that. I think they're close. Like you said, they lost besides the first game to Colorado. You know, they lost some tough games, you know. Yeah. Bad shooting night against SC. And, and that's number one team in the country. And had them on the ropes. Well, not on the ropes. It was winning the entire game until the last four minutes of the game. They gonna, I think they're going to be all right. It's just, you yeah. know, just got to figure it out. You know, Michaela's young. They're they going to be all right. I think they just – they're a piece away. Not even a piece away. They're just moments away. Moments right. of growth and maturity. So they'll be all right. I'm looking forward to see what they do as we get closer to this March Madness time. I love for them to get hot rolling in the March Madness. And love to see them battle South Carolina again. Because I think if they yeah. go toe-to-toe again, they come on the other side of that victory. Yeah. Nah, it's going to be a great tournament for sure.
Yes, well, on a timeout with the sports doctor, this is your final timeout. So, you know, beautiful story. I love your journey from athlete to entrepreneur, you know, thriving through the pandemic. So just speak to an athlete or entrepreneur who might be discouraged by a setback and kind of talk your, you know, talk through the process of winning by losing and how you just have to continue to get take your L's and learn lessons from them and continue to grow. They call I, I say my biggest thing, I say lessons and blessings, man. So those losses people talk about, I say lessons and blessings because we all go through them. I don't care what stage of life you're in. I don't care what you could be on Mount Rushmore. You're still going to go through the lessons and blessings. So it's just like an athlete. You come out, you have great days, you have bad days. It, it's part of it. So when that game is over, go back to that locker room, go to practice, let's get back to the drawing board again. And that's life every day, you know, instead of trying to win, and try like say baseball. We're trying to hit home runs, man. Base hit win games. If you consistently get base hits, you can win a game. And, and then I, that was things that, yeah. And that's what I had to learn too. Like I, I was always swinging for the fences. I want the home run. I want the home run. And I had to have somebody in my ear, like, man, are you okay? Like you're hitting base hits. What, what are you complaining about? Why are you not happy? And I think as an athlete, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And then when things go wrong. We get in that dark space, and sometimes it's hard to battle out of it. So, it, I and that's why I break life down to days. Man, every day is a game. So now, life, I got a game every single day. So just win this game. If I can win today and then win tomorrow, win, I can end up winning the conference and end up winning the championship. But I can't just look at the whole thing. I got to win. And even then, when I lose a game, I ain't lose the season. So I just think we got to just stay bring that same mentality of sports into your everyday life. And then the entrepreneurship, it's gonna be so many. It's gonna be dog days, up and down. And then it's not it's not microwave success either. So we can't go into it and say, man, I'm a year in. I done put my money into this. I done tried this. It ain't working. Okay, cool. If it ain't working, you need to go to the drawing board. Why is it not working? Analyze the things that you may be doing wrong and change and fix those to try to get it right. But I think as former athletes, we have the advantage. You got the competitive drive, and you also have the relationships. Man, you got so many relationships that you'd have made over the time. And, yeah, so I think, like you said, as former athletes, we also have the advantage the, uh, of the connections that we make. Man, you play with so many different people and coaches, and everybody scatter out around the world. So it's like, hey, you know, hey, hey Joe Blow, you know, I'm over in L.A. now. I know you over here. This was space on me. You know anybody? So you, you're able to use those relationships. They don't work for me, like, yeah. a lot. And I never thought, like, being on this end of it, like, a guy I played with, his dad is running the hospital. You know, it's just different stuff. So it, I think the relationships, but I think, like you said, as athletes, just bring the same desire and drive you bring to the business world. And when things don't go right, you didn't quit on the field or on the court. Okay, cool. Go back to your, get in your bag. Let's go back yeah. to the drawing board figure out why it's not going right and go fix it. But I think you just got to be, and you got to accept the fact, I think the hardest part is people accepting the fact that you don't play sports no more. Like, I think that's the hardest thing. I've seen it with my, some of my teammates. Like, hey, I call, like, man, what's going on, man? Like, especially, like, you know, the first five, four or five years after we finished playing, they're like, yeah. man, I'm it was rough. Like, man, yeah. I, I never been in here before. Like, man, I ain't getting the same love I used to get. Yeah, because you're not playing no more. The days is over. Nobody cheering you on, right? Yeah, Yeah. nobody cheering you on. And I'm sorry, but we're going to call a spade a spade is. 
you ain't doing for what you could do for people no more. Like mm -hmm. people wanted to be around you because you know you was a top D one athlete. You're not there no more. You didn't make it to the league. So guess what? The same people that used to blow your phone up, they're not. And then wow. now you're not in a space that you used to be. So now you're uncomfortable. And now you don't even have all the people around you that you used to have. So now that's where that that slope goes to. Now you're getting into that dark space of depression. I seen, I was never in that space, but I've seen some of my teammates be in that space because they're like, I, I've been a guy my whole life. I'm 22 years old. And now I went from here to now I feel like I'm here. Nobody want to hang out with me no more. You know, and my phone ain't ringing. I ain't making no money because I really didn't know what I, I thought I was going to play in the league. So that was my focus. So it's a rough space, but the transition is finding yourself. And I was blessed with two parents that from high school, one day that ball, you, you're going to put it down one day. Like, who are you without it? And I've heard that since high school. And it was always, who are you without it? You got to find you. If you make it to the league, you make it. But if you don't, who are you and what are you going to become? And I think that's what we got to be able to, to discuss among the African-American community and amongst the uh, athletes. And that's why, like, now I try to, like, go talk to even people that's athletes now or former, just like, listen, I always wanted to be in the league, but now as a businessman, I want to own the team. Hmm. Like, that's that's the different man mindset I have. Like, everybody want to be LeBron James, but it's somebody that pay him too. Right. So, like, that's where I want to be at in that space. So, and I also got to – just get out there that, you know, in our community, like, oh, you got to be an athlete. You got to be a rapper. You got to be somewhere in that space. Man, it's doctors, lawyers, judges, dentists, engineering. It's, it's a lot of things that you can make it. And, and if you're a hustler, like me, I always was a hustler. And then I brung this with it, and I just put it together. And you can right. you could drive the vehicle however you want to do it. So it's more ways to do whatever you want to do. I just think we got to put it out there and stop putting the notion that, Sports is the only vehicle or rapping, and that ain't it. You got to, you know, this is the best, the strongest muscle in your body if you truly use it right. So we got to start yeah. utilizing that muscle and utilize Okay, cool. Sports got me here. But now I got to utilize, I got to use it. Because mm -hmm. that's what happened is sports uses us and yeah. it's over. Yeah. And we don't use it back. You need to use all the resources you got, all the connections you got, and the free education and make sure you get it. Yeah. And that's why the internet was trying to keep us off the, from this conversation. Because this is, you know, this is what it's truly about. This is life, sports, and medicine. This is why this podcast is here. It's real stories, real people to make a real impact and to tell other people what they're possible, you know, what's possible out here. What can they achieve more than what they've seen, more than what their family has achieved? Because it's people like you that are out there killing the game. And it's not because you started here. It's because of the work that you put in and just continuing to not give up when challenges, you know, come in your path. Absolutely. I appreciate you uh, reaching out and having me on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell people how they can follow what you're doing and, you know, follow your company or if they need yes. someone. How they can get uh, in touch. So my company Instagram is OPS underscore LA underscore MS. And then our, our website is www.delayguy.com. But you can look up Orthotic and Prosthetic Solutions in Baton Rouge, Shreveport, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, Mobile, Alabama. You can look us up. Uh, and like 
even if someone sees this and say, hey, man, I, I don't really have no prosthetic question, but I got a question about life. I got a, I'm got a former athlete. I'm trying to figure out, like, man, I, I don't hold nothing back. Like, I'm an open book. I ain't no bougie guy. You can holler at me. I'm talking about you hit me up. I give you a number. We can chop it up, man. I want to see everybody win. I want to see um, – so any resources I got that I could pass to somebody, um, I'm more than open to. So I want anybody to feel free to, if they want to definitely hit me up. Um, my Instagram is the dot L-E-G-G-U-I, the dot leg guy. Yeah, um, we'll include all this information in the show notes, too. All right. But, yeah, I appreciate me having you on. Um, Doc, you keep doing your thing. We definitely going to link up soon. All right. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a five-star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so we continue to get the updated episode. Until later, peace. Medicine.